This is Louisa Wilcox at Grizzly Times, where we speak for the grizzly bear and the wild places it calls home. The grizzly has long captured our imagination as a symbol of wilderness in the American West, but it's still vulnerable and needs our help. Our podcast introduces you to fascinating people, scientists, business people, advocates, artists, and others who share their experience and insights about grizzly bears and their ecosystems. You can also find us at grizzlytimes.org, and we hope you will join us in helping the threatened grizzly flourish in our rapidly changing world. This is Louisa Wilcox with Grizzly Times, and I'm delighted to be here today with Reno Summerhalter. Reno's a naturalist, filmmaker, guide, and an expert on bear ecology and behavior, and his passion for grizzlies has taken him around the world. Reno's originally from Switzerland, but for the last many years, he's lived his dream in Banff, where he studies bears and other wildlife and works to promote coexistence. Thanks, Reno, for joining us today. Oh, I really appreciate the opportunity, Louisa. So, Reno, you've been obsessed with grizzlies ever since your first visit to the Canadian wilderness, when you had an interesting encounter with a bear in Jasper Park that changed your life. What happened? Uh, it was, uh, it was, you know, I was 19 years old when this happened. I was young and naive. I barely spoke any English. Um, I was pretty fresh out of Switzerland. I had really no clue about bears or wilderness etiquette, for for that matter. And and during the day, you know, I'd walk around with a with a little Swiss cowbell that somebody had given me as a farewell gift. And and during the day, I had it attached to my backpack and. And uh, and at nighttime I would hang it up in my tent. And um, so one night I was in Jasper National Park. Um, my middle of the night I wake up because my doorbell is ringing. The whole tent was shaking, and I as I sit up in my sleeping bag, um, I stare into the face of a bear who had op- who had uh, torn open the side of the tent, stuck his head through that hole. Um, and we looked at one another, probably both uh, about as shocked. Um, um, and, and fortunately, though, he, he pulled out the head after a couple of seconds and, and, uh, and walked off. Um, I had food in a tent at the time. Like I said, I had no clue about bear etiquette in those days. And, and, uh, but it was that encounter, really, that, that, um, um, that attracted me to the world of bears and and while other people would have potentially been pushed away um, um, from bears, uh, from from an, an encounter like that, for me it worked like a magnet, and I wanted to know more about these animals and and how they thought and how they felt and how they lived, and and uh, so from that moment on, pretty much I spent every free minute I had in my life amongst and with bears and studying literature and and trying to really get into the head and hearts of these animals. So you're an expert in wilderness survival, uh, and you've foraged a lot on native plants. How does the work about your work on native plants help you to understand the grizzly bear? Um, 
in in most of what I do, I do a lot of educational work with grizzly bears. I do multimedia to, uh, talks. We we shot some um, documentaries about bears. Um, wrote a couple of books, however, in German so far about bears. And and in all the work I do and in all my thinking about bears, I always again and again and again come back to the similarities between them and us. And uh, that's one of my approaches of trying to get bears close to people by showing them how similar we really are in many ways. And, you know, grizzly bears and people, we're both omnivores. We we have a very similar diet. Our digestive system is a little bit different, but but as far as the the food that goes in, we're, we're very similar. And, and, and most people know there's accounts of native tribes um, around the northern hemisphere that have apparently followed bears and tried to copy their feeding behavior and, and learned from bears what was edible and what was maybe not. And and so for me, it just uh, um, the more I find out about what bears eat and when they eat it and where they find it, the more um, I realized that that most of these foods have been or are still eaten by people today somewhere around the world. And in fact, I, with that idea in mind, I began years ago um, as a background, background as a chef, actually many years ago, I learned to become uh, a chef. Um, I was trained in a French classic cuisine. And, and so I combined that knowledge of bear food with my old um, trade, uh, cooking, and, and, and I started offering bear meals, bear educational wow. evenings where I, where I prepared with the help usually of a kitchen team where we would prepare a three, four course meal and every mm. single item on the plate in front of people would be somewhere along the northern hemisphere bear food wild bear food and if you think about it um, um honey um or all sorts of different wild game meat um berries root vegetables um lettuce like dandelion and stuff there's so many foods that we can eat that bears eat today and so I combined it and, and, and also designed at the same time for each course of those meals a slideshow in which bears, oh, cool. would, in bears would eat and dig up or catch exactly the foods that people have on their, on their plates right at the moment. And while the people were actually eating it, they would see those images and I would say a few words about the images and stuff and just try to bring bears closer to people basically through our stomachs and who doesn't like to eat. Um, so, so from an educational aspect, I thought that was quite catchy and, and, uh, and mm -hmm. yeah, and yeah. It's a wonderful idea. <laughs> so, Reno, you, you've worked very closely with another premier bear expert, Charlie Russell. Uh, and you worked with him on a rehabilitation effort of uh, a number of grizzly bear orphaned cubs in Kamchatka in the Russian Far East. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you may have been worried that surrogate human moms to baby bears would be a difficult proposition, but you found that wasn't the case. What led you to that realization? Yeah, before I, before I uh, um, you know, I naturally accepted Charlie's offer at the time, um, very quickly, um, because it was obviously an amazing opportunity to be able to spend a summer with the famous Charlie Russell out in the wilds of the Russian Far East, and 
and to this day um, I have to say it was it was uh, one of my most memorable summers ever amongst bears um, it was a fantastic summer but yeah at the beginning I thought why would these bear cubs follow you know a human being through the wilderness you know what would what would entail them to accept us really as surrogate mothers I couldn't quite picture that and and even though I had done some tryouts earlier in Alaska with orphaned grizzly bear cubs that I had found um, but it wasn't quite on a daily basis like it was here with Charlie and in, in the Russian Far East. And so what I learned pretty quickly is that um, how quickly they adopted us and how quickly they would follow follow every one of our steps into the wilderness, um, which kind of blew me away from a, from a food perspective. You know, I, I was kind of trying to figure out, you know, what will it take for, for us to teach those little critters um, bear knowledge basically where do you dig up and find the plants that they need at what time of year uh, it, it seemed all very complicated to me at the time but I did not realize how much um, comes to them instinctually they knew exactly where to go they knew which plants to eat at what time of the year hmm. without either one of us or their mother having show, showed them where those um, those food items would be found. And so that was very amazing to me. Up to that point, I always thought everything that a little, that a bear knows would be learned from the mother. And while a mother certainly helps um, to show the cubs in real life, it doesn't seem to me that they really require that. And and that's, that summer I realized that the, um, the, the main purpose of a female mother um, to the, towards their cups is the safety on the one hand and uh, the really fatty fatty mother milk um, that certainly helps them during the first year, two years of their lives. But yeah, so much uh, seemed to be um, seemed to be instinctual and uh, they knew exactly what to eat and where to find those things. One of many dangers that cubs face is being killed by male bears. It's rare, but it does happen. Reno, maybe you can share a bit about your personal experiences with this. Yeah, it was yeah, it was um, it was fairly a fairly tragic event, and we had this we had this male bear that that um, started following us. I remember this one time. Charlie, we we had uh, we had gone. We had decided that we'd go on walks together um, every day. And since we knew that this bear was around, and and the day that we that we found out that this bear showed an interest was uh, a day where we left the cabin. Charlie was ahead, and then the cops followed, and uh, I was walking behind. And we walked past this this male bear. Was about 30, 40 yards from us, feeding, grazing in a meadow, and we walked past him. And I and I stopped while Charlie and the cops continued, without any worries whatsoever about this bear because we had passed him before. And that day, for some reason, I stopped and talked to the bear, and and he kind of sat down and looked up and looked at me, and he looked over at the cops as they were disappearing around the corner, and then he got up with his nose to the ground and started following us. And then I, hmm. I caught up with Charlie and I told him, hey, this male's following. And 
and then we tried to uh, and then at some point I turned around because I couldn't see him anymore so I made a few steps backwards and I saw that he was running now trying to catch up with us and so we were trying in a hurry and his intent was pretty obvious Um, he had he had just realized that you know those those little bears might be good food and 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 some from that moment on we're trying to make it back to the cabin back into the safety of the electric fence that surrounded the cabin at the time and uh, we had chosen a, a shortcut back to the cabin and all of a sudden this bear stood right in front of us cutting us off in turn and it was just amazing to see how these bear worked and how smart they are and, and, and how their noses work and know exactly mm-hmm. what we had in mind. Um, long story made short, uh, we found our way safely back and without having to use a pepper spray or anything on this male, and, and that was it. But that was the first time that that bear kind of gave us um, trouble, and, and then from that day on we really had to watch um, our steps and when we were out with the cops and and it was right around the time when when we left a portion of the fence open so that the opening mm. was large enough that the cops could get out but no larger bears could follow them back in and that was the idea when they wanted to have more independence um, oftentimes they wouldn't come home anymore after the walks with them in the evening so they would settle down somewhere under a pine bush and go to sleep and they looked at us and yawned and basically told us that they were not coming home tonight similar to when (laughs) your teenager spent the first first night away from home and (laughs) and um, and so that that happened, and right during that time, I remember one night we both woke up in the cabin because the bears came running back. We could hear them thundering along the tundra, coming back, running back into the safety of the electric fence. They were huffing and puffing outside, and mm. we went outside with a flashlight and saw that two of the cops had come back. Um, oh. the, two, the two more dominant ones, it was Gina and Gina and... Uh, and uh, and then the next morning we went out looking for them, and uh, and we found two more of the cups. And then the next day after that, um, we woke up in the morning and saw a bear on the far side of the shore of the lake, who was feeding on something in a meadow where uh. there is no food because we knew this meadow well and. And uh, so we walked out there, and, and it was that same male bear that had caught Wilder, um, one mm. of the male cops, and and ate mm. him. So that was that was very tragic. And from that moment on, we really had to watch because now he had the taste for the cops, and, and right. uh, it was getting it was getting um, it was getting trickier. But the amazing thing about this was that he never had any interest or showed any interest in us whatsoever, neither Charlie nor I. There was never yeah. a bluff charge. There was never any sort of dangerous um, behavior or language from his part towards us. It was always intended on the cops. So that was, right. that was, that was interesting, similar, yeah. to, similar to a female with cops, and I've watched that in right. the wild as well. But, yeah, like you mentioned at the very beginning, I think, I think the the amount of predation on cops by larger males is maybe overplayed a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. um, 
but but in general, you know, I think in denser, the denser population is the more likely um, um, predation by larger males might happen. But yeah, it's right. always tragic, and and even though it's part of the natural system, it's a very tragic thing to observe for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, you described the playfulness of cubs and the joy of learning how to sled down a snowfield, which these cubs learned how to do. Mm-hmm. What was it like to be in the midst of all that bare energy and enthusiasm? Oh, it's wonderful. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, to this day, you know, it, especially once they were a little larger, the age of, of maybe five, six, seven, eight, nine months, um, and they would already, they would already be... You know, quite the quite the big fur balls, and and the tundra there is fairly soft with a lot of spongy material underneath, and and you could feel their steps when they weren't far away, and when they were running, you could literally hear them running on the tundra, um, and it, like these little thundering steps, and and whenever they were playing, chasing one another, you had to make sure if they were running towards you, behind you, that you wouldn't make one step to the left or to the right, and they would run you right over. Um, it was it was just amazing, or, or the games we could play with them, pulling them off rocks and them trying to pull us off rocks, and it was amazing to to see, you know, them, the playfulness that they had and, and the intelligence behind um in those little heads of the of of these little bears and the thinking that was going on in those heads it was it was <laughs> brilliant to be around them during those days and and I have to say here that the actual physical contact is obviously not something that you want to encourage with wild bears for for very good reasons because in the end you always have to ask yourself you know what does it help the bear the bear doesn't help the bear anything in this case Charlie had this theory um, that he wanted to test, you know, how do these bears react to us people, Um, um, especially once we have physical contact with them, do they really become dangerous and unpredictable towards us? So this was a way for Charlie to test some of his theories and by actually allowing that physical contact to happen to them and to fully have them habituated to us. And and, uh, I have to say that in that year, where they were hefty bears already with a lot of strength, uh, we didn't once even get a scratch because they knew exactly, they could differentiate on my arm, for example, between um, a, a naked arm, the bear skin, and and mm. the sweater that would cover it. And they would bite a little harder with the sweater on it. And, and mm-hmm. they would be very gentle when the skin was bare. And I was just amazed to see how gentle and how sensitive and how these bears would actually be. Um, And so, again, the comparison to people, it's just amazing. You know, the emotional life of these animals, in my opinion, is really not much different um, when you compare them with us. You know, the one thing, in my opinion, that might be quite different is their priority settings. You know, our (laughs) priorities have long passed the survival stage, right? Like we're... Mm-hmm. In the Western culture, we're way past that stage. Bears still have to have to think of survival on a daily basis, and that really differentiates how they react to certain situations. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and they have to think about their stomachs so much. I mean, given that they're hibernating through the winter, you know, exactly. food and becomes an enormous priority in the in the late summer and fall. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I'm I'm you know astonished year after year again living in the Central Rockies here, which is considered to be very marginal uh, habitat for grizzly grizzly bears. You know how not only do they make it through the winter, but they come out in the spring with fat reserves still on their bodies, and that's after yeah. you know basically feeding on grasses, berries, and some carrion mm-hmm. maybe, um, and and roots. You know, and I find that amazing how they do that year after year after year to find enough food, enough calories to pack on those twenty thousand calories per. Per day during hyperphagia, like right now, it, it mm-hmm. uh, I find that really astonishing. Yeah, it is a miracle, actually. I mean, the mm-hmm. whole hibernation process and all that goes into it. I, 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 you know, scientists know a lot about how it works, but you know, at some point, you just kind of throw up your arms and go, "Wow, this is kind of a miracle." <laughs> it is. It is absolutely amazing, and you know that the whole birth of of bear cups too. I find it quite magical. You know, the late implantation and all that that most people already know. Um, and, and for me, it's like bears are really born two times. The first time they are born between the end of January and end of February in the dense site um, within the belly of the earth, basically, if you want. Mm-hmm. And and when they're still tiny and totally helpless and and. Um, where the mother picks them up and starts nursing them right away in the dark of the den site. But then the second birth occurs at some point in April when bears emerge out of the belly of the earth for the first time and see daylight for the first time. And then at that point, at that stage, the real bear cubs with fur and open eyes and, and the cute little things that we know. And so it's like they're almost born twice in my in yeah. my head. and. And I find that just wonderful how nature has, you know, has created this process. I mean, it, it's like all things in nature, right? Everything has evolved over hundreds, thousands of years and has perfectly adapted to this niche, to its niche that it's sitting in within the system, within that chain of interconnectedness. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and I, I just find that amazing how we humans oftentimes, especially in a situation like a zoo where we take a critter like this that is perfect and we stick them into a concrete pit somewhere where none of their traits that evolved over such a long period of time really come to light anymore. And you know that right. arrogance behind a, a captive facility um, of wild animals, it's just very, very inappropriate in my books. and. Um, yeah. And so if you understand well, that interconnectedness and, and the time that's behind the evolutionary process, then, you know, that's a co- it's a total no-go. Well, speaking of, of bears in, on concrete and in zoos, um, you have uh, spearheaded an effort, actually you've been a long-term supporter of efforts to rehabilitate and release into the wild grizzly bear cubs in Canada, and especially in Alberta, where no rehabilitation facilities yet exist. And uh, we had an experience in the U.S. and in Canada earlier this spring with a couple grizzly bear mothers uh, in Montana, in in your part of the world, uh, who were 
shot and left orphan cubs. And in the case of Canada, they were taken in by the Calgary Zoo. Um, you know, and many people would think, well, that's a success because these animals aren't dead. But they were never rehabilitated. In fact, they were sent on to uh, another zoo at the end of the day. So what is your idea of how we should go forward with such situations of orphan cubs? Well, when 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 brown or grizzly bears become orphaned within their first year, they're definitely candidates for for successful rehabilitation and release back into the wild. Um, but yeah, at this day and age, where grizzly bear populations and densities are shrinking all over the place, um, like here in Alberta, for example, we used to have a historical population of more than 6,000 grizzly bears. Today, yeah. we're around 700 bears. And so when you have such a decreased population that is also fragmented in some areas, um, habitat loss um, continuing to happen, um, and a recovery plan that's outdated and, and not in action, um, you, every single bear in the landscape, no matter if it's male or female, becomes super important. And uh, and so if if through human behavior, through human mistakes, you know, a female gets orphaned, um, sorry, um, cops become orphaned because the female gets killed, it is, you know, it is the most responsible thing to do to try to give those cops a chance, a second chance at a life in the wild and add to to the population that's already out there in a zoo. They're completely lost, obviously, to, to the gene pool of the wild population, and they become prisoners in a human world. And that doesn't help the bears whatsoever. Um, it might help human beings to make more money, um, <laughs> but it certainly doesn't help the bears. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm a very big supporter of um, of rehabilitation projects of grizzly and brown bears. I'm also a supporter because I've worked with those bears. I've also worked in Russia on rehab projects of, of both uh, Asiatic black bears and Usuri brown bears in the Russian taiga, and I know it works. It doesn't work 100% of the time because bears are like people. They're individuals. They're, each bear is a different character. But in most cases, it is, cases it works very well with with uh, with brown and grizzly bears, and and I think they simply deserve the chance to to have to live a um, a, li- a life in the wild. Yeah. Well, we lose grizzly bears each year too to trains in the U.S. and Canada, and and this includes even in our national parks or next to them, like Banff and Glacier. And you had a situation in Banff recently where a mother grizzly bear was killed by a train and left an orphan cub that managers haven't been able to find. And, you know, of course, as you've said, this is really tragic as reproductive females are the driving engine of the health of these populations, and losing even a few mother grizzlies can actually cripple uh, recovery, especially if the populations are very small, like this one. So what makes the problem of train collisions so problematic or so intractable, and what should we do about it? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, uh, you know, when I moved here to BAM 35 years ago, um, the main issue was the highway. Um, we've now mm. 
you know, many years ago, fenced this highway corridor with, and mitigated it with um, with wildlife crossing structures. And I think it's one of the best examples worldwide here in in Banff towards Lake Louise, um, where we have a crossing structure for wildlife such as bears and wolves and lynx. Um, about every kilometer there is one crossing structure. Some of them are overpasses, green bridges, and some of them are underpasses. Um, and and it's working. It's working for all species. Um, and uh, it, so it, it's, it's important for that genetic um, um, change from, from north to south through our national park, through Banff National Park. And so now the emphasis on mortalities in the park, in the transportation corridors on the railway. So it's moved to the railway track. Mm. Uh, the highway we kind of cleaned up, and yeah, it's very tragic. About 10 days ago, we lost uh, so-called Bear 143. She was about an 11-year-old female, um, an adult female. She had two spring cups. One of them kind of became famous because apparently it had a, a whitish ha- head. Um, oh, it was, yeah. it was, um, yeah. They called it the panda cub. Um, <laughs> that cub disappeared fairly early in the spring, already in June. It's not known how it died. And then 143 was seen several times with the remaining spring cub, and the last time was about a month ago now, about three weeks before she was killed on the tracks, and that was the last time she was spotted, um, and with the cub. And so when she was struck by the train, it wasn't known if the cub was still with her or not. But nonetheless, the tragedy alone of her death is, you know, big enough to, to, you know, to raise a lot of concern that in my books, not even one grizzly bear should be lost within Canada's most sacred and oldest national park. It's not acceptable. Um, and, and there are things that we can do about it. Um, uh, such as fencing, for example. We can fence the railway tracks as well. There is no reason whatsoever that what helps with the highway, where we've reduced wildlife mortality to 99%, that it wouldn't also work on a railway track if it's mitigated with crossing structures, of course, but that means investing money. And you would think that Canadian Pacific Railway... um, with its record profits every quarter year, would have enough money to invest in getting this done. And um, hopefully the Parks Canada would at some point, the federal government would at some point put down their foot and make a CP rail um, behave appropriately in our national park so that um, in the future we have um, little or no mortality anymore on the railway tracks. It's also, I guess, related to the density of traffic that's getting higher and higher. Yeah, um, right. And, and there's more and more trains as well on the railway tracks. Um, and so in, in some, some days, you know, there's so many trains, and the trains have 120 rail cars on a train. It takes, it takes quite a while for one train to pass. And if you have 35 to 40 trains a day, um, that kind of occupies the tracks for long portions of the day. And because bears don't only use the railway for travel, a lot of these trains are filled with grain, and the grain trickles down along the railway tracks. Yeah. Some people have referred uh, um, to the CP right-of-way as the largest bird feeder 
in Canada. <laughs> and, uh, and that it is, you know, you can, if you do bird counts, it's always a great place to go. You know, you see, you see big flocks of rosy crowned, uh, gray crowned rosy finches or many other beautiful birds along the railway tracks as they feed on grain there. But unfortunately, it's not just the birds, but it's every critter pretty much. Most of the ungulates are attracted to that grain. And then when an ungulate gets killed, of course, the wolves are there and the cougars and the lynx and the owls. And, and you know, we've lost every single species on the track so far. But, you know, that the, the good thing about this is, like I said earlier, that there are solutions to try to reduce yeah. those mortalities to a, to a great degree, maybe... Maybe it won't be perfect, but we can certainly do a better job than we have. Yeah. Well, Reno, you've devoted so much of your life at this point to making the world a better place for bears, but they're still threatened um, across the globe by you know poaching, human intolerance, excessive killing, habitat destruction, and increasingly climate change. How do you focus your time and energy? And on these problems, and what do, how do you how do you focus? Yeah, I used to. I used to get years ago. I used to get fairly depressed about you know all the things that that go on on the planet, and 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 that we can barely make a dent until I realized that that kind of come to a, a place of where place of acceptance really where. I realize that that's the way it is right now. There's, there's got to be a really good reason why we're at this stage on the planet and that we can make a difference. Um, and, and also that the responsibilities don't lie on my shoulders. Um, and, uh, and I'm sure you felt similar in, in, in all the, um, the conservation work that you have been doing over the past many years um, that, you know, there's only it's kind of like climbing a mountain you don't really look up to the top of the peak very often you go step Mm -hmm. for step and try to be in the moment and i think that's the single best thing that we can do is to um to to come to come to a place of of understanding and acceptance that that's how it is right now and to move forward with small little steps and and uh and, and have hope, and there is a lot of very bright spots on the horizon. I think there's a lot of beautiful people out there that have um, similar enthusiasm and, and ideas for for saving what nourishes us, really. Um, and and uh, and I think I um, I look at my daughter too, my especially my older one too is now studying at McGill in Montreal, studying conservation there, and. And how her and a lot of her friends, they don't want to have a car today. They try to reduce their their travel times on airplanes. They try to feed, eat organic food. They limit their shopping as much as they can. There is so much we can do in our own little lives. And that can really make a difference and send a message to the neighbors and to friends and to families. And... and um, and so that we can we can spread the word basically of how we can live uh, more and har- more harmoniously um, on the planet. Mm-hmm. Well, you've said you're obsessed with uh, notions of harmony and humility. Uh, maybe you can explain what you mean by those notions and why they matter so much to you. Well, in in my in my past 35 years, where I've kind of learned a lot about myself by being in wild nature 
um, and, and understanding this interconnectedness of, uh, thing of, of all things as soon as you're in, out in nature and you start learning about bears, it's really difficult to avoid when you learn about bears to learn about salmon, to learn about plants, to learn about berries, to learn about um, water, to learn about soil, to learn about everything because you realize bear is just one species amongst many, many, many in that chain of interconnectedness thing. And, and we humans are part of that chain. We're, we're part of that same world. And so for me, the bear is an incredibly beautiful animal. You know, they're intelligent, they're powerful, they're beautiful aesthetically. Um, they have wonderful traits. But what for me is a lot more important than the bear in itself is what they symbolize. They represent uh, a, uh, an intact ecosystem, basically. They're like a measuring stick, a thermometer for a healthy environment. And that's what what attracts me most to, to bears. They're a window into nature. And, uh, and, and, and for us, if you look around, I remember reading this children book, this child book with my younger daughter a few years ago. And in the book, it's a a father with his two children and they were planning to go on a hike and then the morning they wake up it's raining outside raining heavily big downpour and the kids are like oh that's terrible and so the father says to them well i have an idea let's go for a nature hike in our house and so they go for a little walk through their house and they look at everything that nature has provided inside the house. And in the end of the book, you realize that everything they look at in the house has been provided by nature in one way or another. And, mm -hmm. and, and I thought this was a really nice story to show that, that we're so dependent on a healthy nature, on, on all the resources. And we're so connected to all that. We're a lot more than we think we are, even, even though a lot of our human structures are kind of not in tow with the natural flow of things, in my opinion, when you think about, you know, big trucks backing up and the sounds they make and, and the pollution that we create and the square homes that we build as opposed to roundedness. And um, a lot of it is not really in flow with nature, but everything that we use or materials out of the natural world, or resources um, that come from the earth. And so for me, that harmony, that interconnectedness is obvious on a daily basis, almost with every move I make. And, and, uh, and, and, and for us to be able to find a more harm harmonious way of being on the planet with all the other critters is the only way, when it comes down to it, to actually have our own species survive. Um, anything else um, is just not going to work, and that's pretty obvious if you look at the planet today. Mm. Well, Reno, you've studied bears in so many places, not just Russia and Canada, but Alaska and Italy and Spain and, and actually elsewhere in Europe. What lessons are you learning from conservation in such ecologically and culturally diverse places? Um, there's certainly... I mean, I feel very privileged to to be able to have seen so many places and and seen the differences in the landscapes and and the foods um, um, in in various different populations of bears worldwide, brown and grizzly bears. 
um, um, but but really, you know, I'm just I'm, I'm just going to read you a quick quote here that was um, by a guy by the name of he was a famous homesteader in northern British Columbia. His name was Stanley Edwards. He once said, "25 percent of bears are unfriendly, 35 percent are definitely unfriendly, and the rest <laughs> would prefer to be and the rest would be would prefer to be left alone." <laughs> Which it's a fun <laughs> quote, right? But mm-hmm. And I would agree with his later part, on, and the rest would prefer to be left alone. Bears really don't care if humans are around or not, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but what kind of, what I, what I find in this quote, this quote totally reflects the, reflects the old style of thinking about bears, like it's the Wild West style of thinking. Mm-hmm. How, yeah. would, how would bears be friendly towards us if we hunt them and shoot them on sight every opportunity we have, which has been done with grizzly bears in the West mm-hmm. for decades and decades? And so mm-hmm. bears had for a long, long time no reason to trust us, no reason to respect us because they weren't respected. And mm-hmm. so this old-time thinking, like from this Stanley Edwards guy, is a thing of the past, fortunately. You know, this is disappearing, this mentality, very, very slowly, but this, this mentality is disappearing. And that thought of, it also reminds me of uh, when I first arrived in Russia, I was picked up by a Russian bear biologist, a lady, and uh, she came really close to me and whispered in my ear, and this is no joke, this is how she greeted me. She says, welcome to Russia. Our bears here are very dangerous. And that's how she greeted me. And I thought, wow, isn't that amazing? So there's a lot of people that actually think their bears are more dangerous or our bears are different. But what mm-hmm. what... What being amongst bears around the world have taught me is that, like people, bears are bears. Their behavior doesn't differentiate very much from one another. Food availability might be a little different um, depending on food-related stress or depending on if they were hunted, how intensely they were hunted, their behavior might be different. But in general, bears have an unbelievable capacity to tolerate us humans and they have shown this again and again and again how incredibly tolerant and peace-loving they are Mm -hmm. most of the time there are certainly exceptions to that rule but that's incredibly rare bears in general worldwide no matter where I've been have been very peaceful towards me and I've had literally Ten thousands of encounters with brown and grizzly bears over the past 35 years, and 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 for me, I mean, I don't need any more proof than that. It's very clear. If we give bears a chance to be peaceful, and if we give them the respect they deserve, we will get the same respect in return. It's that simple. And that is my most important lesson that I've learned of being uh, amongst bears. Um, wherever they really occur around the world. Mm-hmm. Well, you do so much public education and outreach on behalf of grizzlies, including your native Switzerland, of course. How do you approach diverse kinds of people? And are there ways to communicate some of your messages that work better than others? Oh, that's an interesting question. I've never actually thought about that um, because... 
I, I approach it, I approach groups of people, you know, maybe ages makes a little bit of a difference if I'm standing in front of a school class as opposed to a room full of adults, that might be different. Um, but, but in general, uh, I haven't really made a big difference other than my message is always the same, that we can do better, we can live in harmony with nature and theirs. It is fairly easy, we just have to really listen. Um, but yeah, that's that's a question that I'd like to actually investigate a little further. I, I really haven't thought much about that. So, Reno, I mean, a lot of the grizzly bear news is bad news of bears being killed, of human intolerance, and, and then you tack on really big, looming, serious threats like climate change, which is and will affect the habitat, um, not just in our lifetimes, but going forward. What keeps you going? Um, yeah, it's certainly you know you can you could wake up in the morning and you can read all the news and and you know feel fairly down on on all the stuff that's going on and it's pretty serious you know I would agree um, there's a lot of things going on out there that make me question you know how much longer. A week can hold on, <laughs> really. But on the other hand, um, you know, I go outside. We we spend a lot of time out in nature on hikes and on river trips and wherever, you know, in the backyard and 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 uh, like just in the last few days. And I live in Banff, which is one of Canada's premier tourist towns. So there isn't just a few people living here. We are lucky that we live on the edge of town. But in the last few days in the backyard, we had two black bears. We had a big mule deer buck. We had an entire elk herd with a male bugling wow. all night long. We had mm-hmm. an owl, a barred owl hooting in the backyard. I mean, all this within the last two, three days. And and as soon as you get out into nature, I find we're fueled by that beautiful energy, by that, by, um, by the most ancient energy really there is and and it's that connection that we all still feel at times to the natural world that gets me going um and as long as nature is around um as long as there, i think there is hope that that we can turn things around and and do it right on the planet and and um and yeah, and, and so I think that's that's kind of what keeps me going. At the same time, it's also my children um, have to say that that I'm doing my work partially also for them so that they have a future, so that they have opportunities to see grizzly bears in the wild and, and other critters um, and feel that connection to nature um, that really connects us all. Um, and it's just something else I wrote in the last few days, uh, just a, a brief quote here that I posted actually on social media. I'll read it to you real quick. Um, the wilderness contains humanity's most precious treasures, not in the form of resources to dig up, log or kill, but rather like an ecosystem untouched by humans, vibrating with the life that belongs, feeding our souls and helping us understand that our human roots originate from that same ancient force. And and that's kind of what encapsulates wow. for me the grizzly bear, you know, that the grizzly bear as a symbol of all this. Um, and that's what keeps me going. 
Thank you, Reno. This is Louisa Wilcox with Grizzly Times with Reno Summerhalter. If you want to learn more about the Grizzly and what you can do to help, subscribe to our newsletter at grizzlytimespodcast.org. And if you can, give us a review. 